Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for having me here. I'd be more, I'm more than happy to help assist you if you're in workplace improv training. Uh, my name is Ruben Ryan, and uh, I am. This, we're, we're just gonna. We've already talked about all the uh, the main things, the yes ands, the the uh, the gift giving, all those types of things. <laughs> no, I know they're not real gifts. Um, but now I think it's actually we're gonna do an exercise today. Uh, called yes and and uh, I've brought now I normally I normally work with youthful students I brought one of my students with me uh, hello everyone this is uh, this is Jeffy hello I'm Jeffy and I can name all the everyone in the cast of Star Trek Generations as appear as they appear on IMDB thank you alright thanks Jeffy I'm sure they're super impressed by that um, and uh, Jeffy is going to help do some scenes with you because I've been working with Jeffy for a while. He's, uh, he's getting pretty good at improv. And I uh, should be able to help you guys you guys out here. All right. Uh, let's see here. We need to first volunteer for the uh, the scene, the sacrificial lamb scene, if you will. Well, I'll go first because I'm I'm floor supervisor. All, all right, Mr. Miller. Uh, I guess you could use seniority to justify why, why you're going to go first. But you don't have to. It's a voluntary basis. But, uh, sure, okay. Alright, Jeffy, you're gonna be in a scene with Mr. Miller. Um, Jeffy, just, uh, you know, get a call out like you normally do, and, uh, we'll go from there. The only rule here is that no matter what the other person says, you have to, uh, say yes and to the statement, and, uh, and thereby develop the scene. Okay, Jeffy, are you ready? Yes, I'm very ready. Alright, uh, this, for this scene, I am going to need... A summer activity. Eating a popsicle. Eating a popsicle. I chose a summer activity because it's very cold right now. That's alright, very good, Jerry. Alright. Hey Dad! I wanna I wanna bite of your popsicle. No, you can't have a bite of my popsicle and I'm not your father. Oh okay, Mr. Miller, Mr. Miller. Okay. Well, the the only rule was you you had to say yes and to Jeffy. Well, I don't want to give him any of my popsicle. It's not a real popsicle, Mr. Miller. It's 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 not a real popsicle. That's not not the point. And it, you know what? It, it, it's a little bit more of an advanced technique, but you don't technically have to give him the popsicle. Okay, that's fine. You, wanting the popsicle is a character want. That's that's fine. Um, but but you have to you have to acknowledge he's your son. Yeah, Dad. All right, for the scene. Yeah, for the scene. Okay, Jeffy, that's enough. All right, so so Mr. Miller, so Mr. Miller, we're gonna take that. They're gonna take that again. Jeffy's gonna give you the line again, and I want you to hear what he says, and I want you to acknowledge it with a yes, and then I want you to expand upon it with an and. Okay, so he's gonna give you information. You're gonna take it in, acknowledge it, and then add to it. Okay, very simple, very basic stuff. Don't don't worry about being funny. Just Get to those steps with me, okay? Okay, fine, whatever. All right. Dad, I want a bite of your popsicle. Yes, I am your father, and I don't want to give you any of this popsicle. Because, because, uh, because, uh yes, I'm your father, and I don't want to give you this popsicle, because sharing is for communists. Yes, Dad, and I want to be a communist. Redistribute that popsicle into my mouth. What? I had... Ah, that's great. Okay, everybody, that's a great job. Great job, Jeffy. Now, we didn't get the location in there. I mean, it, 
we didn't get really the location in there, so maybe one of you could try to add that. Oh yeah, yeah, right. We left left out the location. But uh, but good, good job overall. Now hold on here. I don't I don't care for this talk of communism and redistributing wealth into anyone's mouth. Mister Miller, it's 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 just a scene. We're we're just we're just having an imaginary exchange. Jeffy's not not really a communist. Jeffy, are you a communist? Are you a communist? No. Uh, how I base all my political beliefs off of Starfleet, though, which has some similarities to communism, but is not exact communism. See, see, so no one, no one's a communist here, uh, Mr. Miller. You're, you're okay. All right. Um. All right. So who would like to go next, Mr. Miller? You just win. You, you, you can't go again. No, I, I feel like I can do better. You, you feel like you can do better. Okay, who would like to? Fine. Who, who would like to be in a scene with Mr. Miller? Okay, here. No, I want to be in a scene with Jeffy again. You guys just did a scene together. Um, Jeffy was just helping me demonstrate. It's okay, Mr. Ryan. I'll do another scene with this old man. Jeffy, Jeffy, we talked about this. You can't just. No, it's on, Mr. Ryan. It's on, Mr. Rubin. It's on. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, all right, fine, Mr. Miller. You can you can do one. You can do a scene with Jeffy. I'll get the call out this time. Oh, oh, okay, fine. All right. Uh, for this scene, I'm gonna need uh a reason to fire someone. Late for work. I'll keep. I'll remember that, Anderson. Employee, you are late for work, and I'm going to fire you. Uh, yes, I have arrived after my predetermined shift position, and I did so because I changed my my come to work time. What? You can't do that. He he actually uh, actually Mr. Miller he's he's established that he he can. If you if you question that if you question something about that, you could maybe make it about how he did it or or something. You you changed the work schedule. Well, well I'm changing it back. Well, I guess that'll affect my work schedule tomorrow, except uh, tomorrow. Y yes, and you better be here on time tomorrow or you'll be fired well uh, yes and I won't be late tomorrow because tomorrow I'm being promoted over your head mr. Miller I'm being promoted and then I will make the schedules with my new power I technically got promoted yesterday but now I will rule this floor like an iron fist and the first thing I will do is make sure that it's a tyrant such as yourself it's laid low before the people of this office. And they understand. They understand that I am their new leader. Their new god. Alright, scene. You can't just end the scene there. I just... I just... I just... I, uh... Mr. Miller, the scene's, the scene's over. Jeffy runs your office now. And Mr. Miller... 
you're fired. Welcome to the Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ruben Uncut. I have a uh, I have a special guest with me today. His name is Brian Fox. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hello, Ruben. Good to be here. Yes. I'll, I'll slightly correct you. Sometimes I'm known as Brian Fox. I'm also known as Brian Rolnick Fox. It's a whole thing. It's a actually, whole thing there. I was going to ask about that. Um, yeah. I think actually, uh, so. I think when we first met, you knew me as Brian Fox, but then I switched my. It's all we're getting. We're already getting into it, and then we, and then I switched to Brian Rolnick Fox. So, so I will say, I think um, recently I did a uh, a comedy show for um, the. Uh, oh my god, I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, the the Jewish Community Center you're a part of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Jew, J, Jewish Community Center, also known as the the separate second organization that's connected to, is called the Jewish Community Board of Akron. Hashtag altogether Jewish acronym. Yeah, that's right. Okay. The reason I the reason I mentioned that was just that uh, I think that was the first time I'd heard you use the name Rolnick. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um. So, so wait a minute. Um. It is. Uh. I take it one of these is your your married name or? Yes, it's my married name. So, uh, I'm I'm hyper liberal. Okay. And uh, my wife is even more liberal. And uh, we um. We we had we had professionally we had kept our names separate. Like so, she was Rebecca Rolnick professionally, or Becky Rolnick, and I was Brian Fox. But our kids were Rolnick Fox. Mm-hmm. And then over the last couple of years, that was fine when they were toddlers and they didn't really know much about life. But as they got older and they recognized that they had a last name, and then they started to realize like, wait, why is Daddy's name this way and Mommy's name this way and our name's this way and da da da. We were like, this is just too much. And some some people do it that way, and that's fine for them. Just for us, it felt like. We just want to have all one one name together, and so a few years ago, we officially legally changed our names to Rolling Fox. Okay. And so I try to use that more and more, both professionally and personally, and it's been sort of a gradual process to to bring that along. Makes sense. Makes yeah, sense. There you go. Yeah. It's right. better for search engine optimization as well, because <laughs> selfishly, because there are a lot of Brian Foxes out there, but not a lot of Brian Rolnick Foxes out there. So anyway, that's that's the short version of it, and I. Um, my Becky Soto family is a lovely family, and I'm happy to to own that name as well as my own. Hey, man, I can't I can't blame you for wanting to uh, search engine optimize. That's a that's a really great point. That's a go, really great right? point. Like, yeah. uh, I love the name Brian Fox, but it does yeah. sound like a name that you uh, could hear on a regular, uh, fairly regular basis. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Brian that's Fox. how my wife finally sold it to me. She said, "Think about the search engine optimization. Don't worry about our kids. <laughs> search engine." optimization three words and i was like well if you put it that way then that's more important and that's what we should do yeah so that's a that's how it worked out well so while we're bringing up search engine optimization maybe we should tell uh people what it is that you do sure they can search engine optimize maybe (laughs) um (laughs) so uh i have my own uh coaching consulting and uh learning development firm called nimble learning strategies and uh, I use improvisational theater techniques to help people improve their communication, collaboration, and leadership skills 
primarily in the corporate world and also in the nonprofit world. All right. Excellent. That's the short version. Yeah, no, you get, you're doing that, uh, that corporate improv. Gig. Exactly. And I just was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and uh, we know that people make fun of people who do corporate learning or corporate improv, and that's okay. We're okay with that. We know that many people in the corporate world, sometimes they need it the most. Oh, yeah. They're they're stuck in cubicles and all the rest, and so we try to help people live a more vivacious, energized, connected life through as, improv. As, as someone who uh, who who want, who uh, spent a few years working in an, an office selling insurance, I, I assure you the corporate people definitely need this. Yeah, they, exactly. They need to. They need to get. They they they're such a. They they need to get outside the box. They they they're very firmly in a box. There's no <laughs> right, L- literally. Like I I oh, had yeah, a client <laughs> once year, major major bank, and I went to go visit them at one of their many locations. They're one of their corporate locations across the country, and um, and every floor was just cubicles as far as the eye. I had been in some big office buildings before, and I had worked in some office buildings before. I was in one of those cubicles at one point. For a major nonprofit, but um, but I'd never seen anything like this. It was such a huge floor of just like bigger than a football field of wow. just cubicles, and each floor had to have a different color because you you would it looks so much exactly the same <laughs> so you could that tell you would have to go out. Are you at the purple floor or the orange floor? Because like you'd get to the next floor and you're like, well, it looks exactly the same except for the color. If it wasn't for that, it would be mind numbing. Wow, anyway, yeah. Hope you get a hope you get a hope you get a floor of a good color. <laughs> right, right. Because if you get like you know, uh, blinding pink or blinding yellow or something, you're in trouble. My my floor is very unfeng shui. <laughs> I can't I can't focus at all. Right, right. Maybe they maybe they have a special request form to transfer you to a different floor because you don't like the color, and uh, you're, you have color sensitivity. Guys, I've been on this blue floor for too long. I think I'm getting depressed. Could you please send me somewhere with a brighter, with a more happy color? I'm requesting yellow is my first choice, orange is my second choice. I'll take fuchsia, but it's my third. Please don't send me to the red floor. Everyone there is angry. (laughs) So true. Yeah, exactly. They don't even know why. (laughs) They don't know why. It's it's easily the the floor with the most staplers thrown. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What's wrong, Bob? It just was on the red floor for an hour. Oh, okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. Anyway, so yeah, that's what I do. I do. I help people most in the corporate world, sometimes in the nonprofit world. And uh, and it's fun. And it's good. And I enjoy it. Yeah. And I know that you have used improv for, for the purposes of good as well. And, uh, I've been, and we've talked a little bit about this, but I've, since we're having this more formal, quote-unquote sure. formal chat, I'd love to hear more about your work with improv. Sure. I'm going to flip the tables. I know this is your, you should be interviewing <laughs> me, but I'm going to just take a moment to interview you and just be, I'm, I am literally curious about the work that you've done with people with different abilities and things of that nature. Sure, no. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, I teach, I also uh, do a lot of work with improv. Um, I teach improv at the uh, Center for Applied Drama and Autism. Um, I've 
I have, uh, ha so I've had a lot of experience now. I've taught improv to people with disabilities. I've taught improv to uh, people on the spectrum. Mm. And uh, it, it, and it's uh, it's pretty rewarding work. And uh, honestly, I can't think of a better thing to uh, to to be teaching to people in this situation to sort of like how should I put it? Um, gain a better understanding into um, that type of situation because it really like exploring what makes people ready to what I refer to as enter a state of play is, is very fascinating. Um, and people with different, um, disabilities or on different parts of the spectrum, it's, it's fascinating to sort of get in there and see what does it take to make them comfortable enough to play with you. Wow. Um, and, and that's, and it's fascinating because it's simultaneously very individualized. Um, but at the same time, like in terms of like people, people with disabilities or people on the spectrum um, tend to have the same hangups and the same like they make the same mistakes as anybody else when they start improv. Mm -hmm. They, I mean, there, there might be a little bit more specialized thing. Cause like, honestly, the hardest, the hardest thing I've had to like help people get around, uh, working with uh, disabilities is just, um, convincing them that they don't need to start a scene by saying hello to people, wow. which is just like the hardest, the hardest challenge has actually been just like, we can start in the middle. You don't mm -hmm. have to start at the beginning cause they have when they enter a scene, they have a natural inclination to make that be like the meet, like the moment where they meet that character, um, which makes sense on a certain level, you know, because like you're coming into the scene there. There's another person because in reality, it, it is like you're just walking into that. But of course, we know in improv, like you kind of need to skip that stuff, <laughs> right? You need to get you use subtext to backfill yeah that. you want to yeah, yeah, yeah. get past the hellos um you want uh, and that, that, what you said earlier was interesting to me that they basically have similar these people with different differing abilities are have basically similar challenges to improv that people who are um i don't know the proper term but don't have those don't have those abilities don't have those disabilities have similar things and you know in teaching improv i've i found that too that even if they're not literally saying hello when i've taught improv way back when people just want to start at the beginning i think that's a very natural thing for people who are what i call civilians people who are non-actors oh totally to, to to jump into so that that makes that makes sense and it's interesting that it means it's almost like a it's so universal right it's so mm -hmm. no matter where what your background no matter what your ability or disability or differing ability is um, at the very core, we're still human, and we have that sort of need to like start from the beginning, or do X, or say no, or ask a question, or all the things that trip you up in improv. Who, if you're beginning improv, no matter who you are, including myself, back in the day, mm -hmm. right? Um, oh, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. The, wow, uh, that's awesome. Some other interesting ones are, um, well, I mean, like, of course, they have the same thing with questions. 
that any new improviser has. Like you just, it's so hard to get away from asking questions. And part of that is, uh, part of that is actually a self-empowerment thing. Mm. Um, like we don't realize it cause we don't understand like when you first come into improv, you don't really understand like what the difference is between making a question and, and asking it, uh, asking a question or, or making a statement. And, and and a big difference between those things, and uh, I'm not going to get into the finer nuanced details of like learning how to ask questions in improv, but c because there is a way to do it. Uh, but uh, essentially, it the, one of the big major challenges I faced was just teaching people about that self empowerment concept, the concept that you have just as much right or power to create the scene yourself. Wow. When you when you ask a person a question in an improv scene, you're essentially handing off the reins of what you're doing to another person. You're essentially yeah. you're essentially you are either giving them more work to do or you are set or you are unempowering yourself. Because because mm -hmm. you are automatically putting yourself in the lower status position by having a character who doesn't know what's happening and the thing about improv is that anyone has the power to know what's happening you just you're, have blowing, to... you're blowing my mind right now Ruben and here's why because I I've not looked at it at a, as a as a disempowering thing or not owning your own power which that part is really rocking my world I've always looked at it as I mean it's, it's sort of different shades of the same color in a way but I've always looked at it as um uh, you know, abdicating or, or, or actually I've, I've always described it as you're, you're putting the onus, you're putting the responsibility solely on your partner and the, how unfair that is to the other person. So yeah. I looked at it almost as a selfish thing, but, but you're coming from a bigger empathetic piece of, gosh, maybe they're not doing it from a selfish reason. They're doing it from a, a place of feeling of powerlessness. They don't, they don't feel like they have the power to make a choice. They don't have to have a power to, to a, a offer an idea. And I didn't think about it that way. And that makes so much sense. And I really, really, I'm going to borrow that and give you credit every time I say it. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah, uh, sure. because, and I mean, like, honestly, that's, that is like, I, cause I hear what you're saying too, because that is something I had to learn from working with people with disabilities and uh, people who are on the spectrum is at a certain point I real because like I realized that and I also got this sense working with children also um, mm. because I used to I've taught a few classes uh, specifically for children and at a certain like until a child is about 10 or so like they have this very instant reaction to when you start something with them, which is that if you if you just watch children play, they will automatically know how to play. But if you suddenly like bring them together and be like, okay, we're gonna play now, <laughs> there will suddenly be this element of them looking to you to make sure that they know how to play. Oh, wow. Because children will wanna look at you and they, they they will hesitate before they play now because now they are interacting with you. And it, that has been a fascinating thing to, to like, like the 10 year old no has already has creative ideas going on. And like all the kids have creative ideas going on. Yeah. But the 10 year old is the only one who's like, yeah, I can say things to adults. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. But right. like the younger kids, 
are gonna want to like am I they're they're gonna look to you like am I doing this right and you'll be and you're gonna be like yes you're doing it right because <laughs> right, right, yeah. like a lot of the things we're t I'm teaching you because you kids you can't do wrong so just relax yeah. you're gonna have fun <laughs> right 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 and and this is sort of a thing that also occurs um sometimes with people who have disabilities or who are on the spectrum um like I've worked with a number of people who just like if you leave them to their own devices, they'll just, they all, like on a certain level, they instinctually have a way to play. Like they know how to play with each mm. other. Um, I had um, these, at one point in one of the programs I was working in, I had these, uh, these two students, um, one of whom uh, had, uh, was deaf and had, uh, and had Down syndrome and another older gentleman who had uh, just cognitive uh, cognitive disabilities and they um, they could just naturally play with each other mm. like they just had a very goofy almost clown-esque mannerism to them they like wow. they understood like they knew how to do slap they knew how to do like very mild slapstick with each other and mm -hmm. like pantomime things and make silly faces at one another it was very it was very cool to see mm. and, and whatnot um, and and it's sort of it's sort of like that because by working with people with disabilities, I almost had to like learn how to like play it from the other end, understanding that I putting myself into even more of a support role because I sort of naturally gravitate towards the support role in improv. Like I think um, some people would refer to me as the glue. Um, I, I'm very true, good. Yeah. I'm very good at knowing like how to assist or like make a scene make sense even if it seems like it's slightly off the rails uh yes i would say that's true about you for sure having played yeah um but so it just it put me into this other place where i could learn I, it has greatly changed my understanding of learning i would say um, and now I sort of th now and what I've learned is I could extrapolate almost everything I, I've learned there to working with anybody. Uh, so, so say say more about that. What did you think learning was before you started this kind of work, and what do you think of it now? And how does it say more about how it also impacts how you work with other people, whether it be on stage or otherwise? Okay. Uh, so yeah. So. Um... So I guess I'll, I'll throw this over to to younger Ruben a little bit here. Um, back in my back in my college days, I was a very uh, I was a very jaded improviser. Okay. I and I sort of uh, I I think I accidentally taught a, a some elitism into the improv that I that I taught in college uh, when I was uh, president of the the Kent State Improv Troupe uh, because I I was just very um, like we would go and see other improv troops and whatnot and like well other college improv troops and whatnot and i could always and i and i was always very self-aware of okay these guys these guys don't have any formal education in improv okay so this is what they're doing wrong <laughs> and i and like also like i also had a, a similar mindset to uh, to what you mentioned there is as i would always sort of i would i would sort of word like questions as uh, uh, pimping or 
uh, be or putting the onus on the other person. And I mean, there is truth to that. Like if you're if you're working with a very experienced improviser and they do that to you, it's like, oh, that guy's just a dick. What the? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, not necessarily. He might have just been off that day or something. But <laughs> you get the idea. Right. 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 Um, there's there's a big like. And like that is that is a big thing that that we we teach in improv is that a person who is is that essentially we focus on like the negative outcome to people asking too many questions and we don't focus as much on the why are people asking questions yes. and I mean like the number one reason people ask questions is because it's it's programmed into us it's it's a hardwired thing we want to ask questions it's it's very basic to human nature. Um, because, but the thing I realized is that the, in, the, the difference between reality where questions are valuable and an improv is that an improv, we're building a reality. And when you're building a reality, a question doesn't have as much, as much meaning to it because you're essentially saying, here's an empty space. I don't feel comfortable filling it. So when a person asks that question in the building process, it's not necessarily as, as valuable as someone filling that, that emptiness instead. Yeah. And the thing is, is that when I worked with people with disabilities, there was this realization that they didn't know what to do next and that they were looking to me for what to do next. So I realized that my ultimate goal had to be teaching them how to not worry about that, how to be able to make their own statements and find their own sort of inventions. Um, and, and like I said, my goal, like the way I view improv now is that the ultimate goal is to get people to enter a state of play. Um, and that's that's the part of doing improv where you forget you're doing improv, where you, right. where suddenly you're not – if you're standing on stage and you're thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do next? You're not in a state of play. You're, 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 you haven't entered the state of play. The state of play is when it's easy, when suddenly yeah. you're, you're just in a space with another person and you're playing. Let me ask you the question about that, though. Mm-hmm. And here's our my, for my own challenge because I feel like there's a there's also this is more for seasoned improvisers who actually perform right, mm -hmm. little not for sort of civilians but mm -hmm. but for, if you're on stage though you you have to both be in that state of play and be in the moment, but also have some sort of awareness of where where might the story go like mm -hmm. how can I what, how is this, how are we building this story and what, what is needed in the story that I can help fill it in order to forward the story forward. Right. Yeah. And okay. There, there's a, there's a balance there that I at times struggle with. Like I, there's a, I'm either too much in my head or I'm too much in the moment and playing and not paying it, not, not, not paying attention, but I not mean, paying attention to the story. You know what I'm saying? Like there's that balance there and there's that, that sweet spot of being both in the moment, but also, seeing the future a little bit if you will yeah in order to give a gift to your fellow improviser right to oh, set yeah. you up for something or whatever it may be oh i mean I, so i don't know what's your thoughts on that 
Okay. Um. So. So yeah. I mean, that is that is totally a thing. Like, um, I wouldn't describe the state of play as like a loss of connection to reality. Um. Th- there's a part of you that should, there's a part of you that should be aware that you are on stage performing, uh, to a certain degree, because you still because sure. because a state of play with another player and a state of play with an audience are both a little bit different. Because uh, with state of a play, with, and you have an audience, you're going to be feeding off the audience too. Like their energy becomes part of the play. For sure. Um, which is a little bit different with uh, when you're when you're playing with other players. Um, but uh, so so yeah. Um, one of my instructors, uh, one of the people who taught me a lot about improv, was this guy named uh, Bob Coppage. And Bob said that, and Bob's, and one of Bob's theories was that there are essentially two, two types of of actors or improvisers. Um, there are people who are self directors, and people who are just acting. Mm. And the way he defined this was is that some people are just comfortable sliding into like characters or situations and just playing them out um but there are other people who are almost playing themselves like a marionette like there's a more conscious level of i i need to do this next and then i need to do that next and i need to do this next um and like sort of like watching themselves from the outside um, and I don't think there's necessarily um, a wrong answer to being one of those people. Obviously, one of those people is, has a more natural state of play. Um, but the other person doesn't necessarily... He is not necessarily not in a state of play just because they are more... Um, what? Self-directed. Self-micromanaged, maybe? I don't, I don't know how... I don't know what the right... What the right... right. Well, the, like you said earlier, self-directed. I like that. Too. Yeah, self-directed. Like you're, you're directing um, yourself in the moment a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, yeah. I think it – I mean, that just – it probably just breaks down to, like, the way that people's wiring necessarily works. Um, I personally um, – I personally, I – and maybe this, is, maybe this is just because I have an unfair advantage being the glue. I'm not sure. But – the way I always look at improv is that you are jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Mm. And your job is to build the parachute on the way down. Mm. Um, right. So I'm a big advocate of trying to avoid things like worrying too much about the plot. Because in my experience, if you f- if you just focus on having like very honest like character interactions the plot will kind of build itself that's true that's true um and i i i just and maybe this is specific to the way i play but i always i think of things more as starting with one small piece like if i've got an idea like i will step into a scene if i have one piece like one one tiny thing if i know the first thing i'm gonna throw out i'm 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 already ready Mm -hmm. uh because from that moment on it's gonna be about seeing how the other person reacts to me Mm -hmm. and 
based in my next rea- my next reaction off of their reaction. Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't know. I'm just I'm the type of person who builds everything one piece at a time. So and I I don't I don't expect everyone to necessarily work that way, but that is the advice I give to people who are pre planners. Right. Because... I think there's only a rare few improvisers that I've seen who can really be thinking three steps ahead mm-hmm. and be in the moment and pull that pull that off well. That's not there's a rare few that can really truly do that. Oh yeah. Uh, but most of us I think have to kind of stick with what you said, which is this idea of I really just need to be in this moment and pay attention and offer gifts and all these other improv axioms and let it let it let and trust that it will work out. Mm-hmm. And there's the there's not just sort of listening in the moment, there's also sort of listening for the need of what it's like it's kind of, it goes back to mirror and follow the follower, right? Mm-hmm. In that moment of follow for the for the improv nerds out there who are listening, right? That <laughs> moment of follow the follower, right? If I'm mirroring and I'm leading and you're following, that's one status, status and, and way of being, or vice versa, you're leading and I'm following. But that next level of follow follower, we're building together, we're using our intuition of where we're I'm using hand movements movements for those who can't see, uh, that we're literally creating the movements together at the same time. There is that sort of intuitive or X factor that uh, Paul Sills talks about that happens that if you can get in that state, it, it is only from being truly in that state that you are both in that state of pure moment and play and creating it, like you said, create, building that that parachute on the way down together. That's where it can truly happen. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's that. those are usually the, the, the best moments when you're in that place. But it's, I don't know, for me, it's, it's it's tricky it's tricky and it's not always um it's this weird it's like meditation or something like that or or what have you like you can't force yourself you have to kind of allow and be but you but i don't for me i have this like the control freak in me it's hard sometimes to let go of that and wants to force myself to be in the moment <laughs> oh, pay attention you know like and so then you know which of course usually nine times out of ten doesn't really work Mm-hmm. Um, so that, then that's, that's the, the tricky part. And I, and I just will say, you, you know, you teaching kids, I've got two kids of my own. And I noticed that when I, as a parent, try to force a situation, force teaching them a lesson, force disciplining them. If I'm in a, in a if I'm in a, I don't mean forceful, like, you know, violent, but just in a forceful mentality or mindset it usually not only backfires, but backfires in a way that actually takes longer or is more complicated because I've actually interrupted the flow and state of being between us than I had and by, by trying to force things. Mm-hmm. And I constantly trying to remind myself to, to do that, you know, as a parent or when I, or when I teach and things of that nature. Um, and somehow when I facilitate in the corporate world, it's easier for me to kind of just allow the participants to make their mistakes, quote unquote mistakes, and then let's discuss like, why was that this? Or why was that that? What was helpful for you? There are no, there are no mistakes in improv. Don't beat yourself up. Da da da. It's easier for me to do that with strangers than my own kids. 
Yeah. No, I will. I. It is easier. It is easier for me to do that <laughs> with uh, with my students than it is for like one of the improv for like one of my own improv troops that I that I that I coach. Right. Uh. Uh. I actually. Oh, I. <laughs> I did not mean to snap at this guy uh, recently. Actually, it was a few months ago uh, in in my improv troupe. But like, I, I don't know. I was just I, I I we were doing a scene, and he came in with a thing that like reorganized the reality of what I had established. Right. And like, if it had been a show, I would have tried to roll with it. But I don't know what it was. But like, I just immediately was like, no. I was like. <laughs> We need to talk about what you just did. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, it, and he's a very sensitive guy, and I I felt bad afterwards. Um, right, right, right. But because uh, it because it does it disrupts that that it disrupts that uh, that state of being between the two people when you do that. That it I mean that is that is sort of like the trade off for any type of authoritarian movement is you yeah. disrupt is you disrupt that uh, that sort of state between the you and the other person. And, and that's what I find in the, in like when I do these corporate um, workshops is that the idea that I can accept someone someone else's idea even if I don't like it mm -hmm. that that is mind blowing to them. I mean, yeah. I think it's human again human nature, right? Like right? even with my own friends and family, if they give me an idea that I don't agree with, it's really hard for me to go. Wait a minute, let me just accept and acknowledge that before I tell them all the reasons why they're wrong. <laughs> like, and so, um, right. That's the sort of the natural state of humans. Yeah. And so it's, it, it takes a lot to interrupt that, but that's, that is often mind blowing to them because they're feeling stressed. They've got high stakes, whatever they're working on, their boss is on their back, whatever it may be. They, and a colleague comes with an idea that they don't agree with. They don't know how to, when I say yes, and is not about agreeing, but about accepting they, because it's out there in the zeitgeist, right or wrong uh you know they 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 don't know it takes them a while for them to digest that and when i just say well what if you could just hear them accept like reflect back okay so I, your idea is xyz you could just state that fact that that's what they said that is now a fact that they they said it whether or not you're going to move forward with it is a different story and they 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 it takes a while it takes them a while to digest that and then they go oh wow that that there's power in that Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you move forward with, even if it's unspoken or spoken, if you're just putting heads about, I don't agree with your idea, you don't agree with my idea, well, you're not going to go anywhere with that. It's not going to go anywhere. People are going to feel frustrated. But if you can just simply just state, um, okay, I hear you saying X and Y, and my idea is ABC, let's figure out mm -hmm. the value of both and where in the Venn diagram, maybe there's some overlap that we can move forward. You know that's sort of more for the work world kind of thing that doesn't mm -hmm. exactly apply for the improv stage but trying to translate that for for people in sort of again who i call civilians who are not on the stage using that skill of that acceptance and then building that's how you break it down in a way that can work for them in their you know boardroom meetings and what have you absolutely um, yeah, i imagine so. that i imagine that type of i imagine like the, the basic challenge that improv makes to like like I mean, improv essentially creates the idea of fluid hierarchy, hmm. and that's Same not a that. th and that's not a thing that that the corporate world is is mentally prepared for. I see. 
like because in improv like you kind of have to be ready to play any part of a hierarchy at any mm-hmm. time like if you're if you only play high status characters that's going to like that's going to make that's going to give you a lot of things that you're dealing with as an improviser that like it, it means you've got a whole range of options you're not exploring correct and also like you can't guarantee you're going to be the high, like if you get into a scene and someone else has already established themselves as the the high status character like i mean like yeah sure a status reversal is a great twist but like that has to come like at the middle or near the end you can't and like organically too yeah yeah that's a great part it, right. it has like a status shift has to be organic yeah because like if it's just if it's just another actor trying to make sure that they have the higher status you're gonna feel that like that's not gonna that's not gonna read that's just gonna be people on stage sort of like arguing mm-hmm mm-hmm right 100% yeah yeah I yeah. I'm gonna jump back to uh okay, to jump. like uh the control um like the control thing because it reminded me of something another valuable thing I've learned from teaching improv um everyone everyone's in basic improv weakness will come from some aspect of of their personality um so mm-hmm. like I've worked with a lot of different people who um do try to be uh pre-planners. Mm-hmm. And like I've actually seen like a range of like effectiveness on that. Um like a few years ago two people came into my improv troupe and they both sort of suffered from the same thing but it played out very differently. Mm-hmm. Um one of them uh one of them was very good at pre-planning. Like, he, he was very, very good at pre-planning his scenes. And, like, and everyone loved this guy and, was and like, was going nuts for him. It's like, oh, my God, he's so good. Uh, and he is a good improviser. But, like, I, 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 I narrowed it down. I was like, okay, this is, the th- this is the one thing that's holding you back. Mm. Is that you are trying to build too much of the parachute before you go into the scene. And that's going to slow you down. And it's going to make it so that every once in a while... You're going to go into a scene with someone and it's they're going to come at you with something that you're not going to see coming. Mm-hmm. And you're in. And you're, you won't know how to deal with it. You're, yeah, you're not going to know how to deal with it. You might have to adapt to it. Um, so so that's so the, the parachute thing is a big thing for me. I'm, I'm always about trying to con- get people on board with understanding that you don't want to plan it out too much. That's. Yeah, that's where you can get kind of that can create a real disconnect between you and uh you and your scene partner mm-hmm. for sure um but yeah so that so that is and, and um and uh, there like you can pick up on a lot of other interesting things like um another another big personality thing that can kind of get in the way sometimes that people have to like sort of uh learn to overcome actually is um is actually a thing that uh, a lot of stand-up son is killing me here. Uh, the a lot of stand-up comedians struggle from uh, when entering improv. Um, one of the big things that uh, one of the big things that that holds stand-up comedians back sometimes is either a their need to make everything funny, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Uh, everything has to have a joke, and the thing is, is that um, Joke. I mean, like, yeah, that's good, but uh, but 
some jokes will sacrifice the reality of the scene and you oh, gotta yeah, you, sure. you gotta watch out for that because sometimes jokes can be a very like building a house on a on like a sand foundation sometimes yeah yeah i i, I um when i was going through classes at improv olympic i was fortunate enough to to study with Doug close he was teaching that he was still alive and uh he taught he would call me hot dogs he would call you, he would I'm sorry, call me hot dog. hot dog hot dog he's like you're hot you keep hot dogging stop being a hot dog and you know i'm like what is this guy on acid <laughs> talking about it took me a while but like i was trying too hard to get the joke in as to what eventually how i interpreted it like i was trying too hard to be take center stage or lead instead of instead of be be you know follow the follower and all those other things and um yeah it took a minute but yeah he kept calling me hot dog <laughs> oh in the back of the room smoking his cigarettes james norton I'm mildly um, jealous of you that you got to work with Dell Close, but <laughs> I would say mildly is a good thing. I mean, he, listen, well, I hear he was. He... I hear he is wild to work. I hear he was wild to work with. So I understand it's probably not all good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, he's you know undoubtedly genius and in, in improv and guru and all those things, but I think he's like you know you have. I think there's again you know a handful of people uh, in that world who really clicked into what he was saying and thinking and understood how to communicate with him and listen to him. And it's an, it's an acquired taste that, um, you have to kind of, and Paul sales was the same way. Like, again, I, I only studied with him briefly over the, you know, later years, but, um, but he was, you know, a little bit of a hothead and, you know, it was, you kind of had to really listen in a different way you know, and to understand what they were, they're mm. trying to get at. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah. I just, I say, I just say that to be like, and I guess that's true for, I just tell this to my kids, it's true for any teacher, you mm. know, they're going to teach how they teach. You, you're not going to really change how they teach. You have to learn how to learn how they want you to learn in a way that fits for you. You have to match your learning style with their teaching style and find out where the middle ground is. Um, and, and, you know, not all the you're not going to connect and love every single teacher you have. And, there um but anyway i i digress but nonetheless i it was that same same idea of like you can't you can't sort of be forcing the jokes and all that other stuff that um is easy to do and i had i had had a little bit of mediocre stand-up background so i probably at that point in my life that's where it was probably coming from you know so another thing that i have always found sort of holds stand-up comedians back or the thing they have to overcome is that and this this applies to some other like this applies to other people who aren't necessarily stand-up comedians also, is that um, there is a resistance uh, to emotional vulnerability. Yeah. Because um, right. a lot of people use comedy as, like, a shield to, like, protect themselves from that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and and so, like, that type of, that type of comedic interaction, um, like... I, I do a lot of exercises that really show me when someone is having that type of reaction. Mm. Um, so, like, I, I at least when working with uh, with with neuro uh, neurotypical people, um, this is a very common reaction. This is not something that people on the spectrum necessarily um, do instinctually, mm. like um, the. The drive to use humor to shield yourself emotionally, not really a uh, thing that's, right. that I've run it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm sure 
certain people on certain areas of the spectrum do do that. But um, generally speaking, that, that type of behavior is also heavily linked to things like sarcasm. Um, when I describe my job poorly, I describe it as I teach abstract concepts to people with, with disabilities. Um, because some of them do have a, a and this isn't just people on the spectrum, but some people with uh, certain types of cognitive disabilities, they do struggle with um, more, uh, I just used the word, um, abstract, abstract reasoning, which is a big part of comedy. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, but a major thing that holds a lot of people back, especially neurotypical people, is this fear of emotional vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um because they they just instinctively use humor to like push that away yeah. and the big issue i find with this um the worst the the worst manifestation of it is when people are uh is when people will try to people will try and inject sort of like apathy like the major emotional, like some, some, especially young improvisers. I'm sorry, I was looking for a hair tie for a second. But especially some young improvisers um, will reach for apathy as an emotional response. Um, and it's the worst. Yeah. Like, like I don't care. I'm too yeah. cool. Yeah. Like, right. apathy has one joke, and that's that's it. Yeah. Like, you almost have to, like, if you're in a scene with a character who's apathetic, the only thing you can really do is just try and heighten their apathy to an absurd level. And, and after that, it's not really useful. Mm -hmm. um, but there is this strong, like, thing where people will try to... People don't want to engage emotionally, necessarily. They're, they're afraid of engaging emotionally, even if the emotions are not necessarily real or their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's a whole if there's a, a, a hesitancy there mm -hmm. uh, to, I think this is true. Like in, in so much of our life, you know, people don't want to see, be seen as quote unquote emotional. Mm -hmm. Right. But meanwhile, that's how we're built. As oh humans, yeah. Right. Um, and somehow being emotional quote unquote is some sort of weakness mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's an unfair characterization and we forget that as humans, we have emotions running all the time, whether we're aware of them or not. Yeah. The more that we can be emotionally intelligent and tap into them and manage them, um, then then we then we will have um, an opportunity to move forward. You know, even again, even with a friend or family member, let alone, um, you know, a colleague or something like that. And it, there's this you know this thing that happens where we're saying one thing but we're feeling another thing because we don't want to deal with and are f afraid to sort of express like truly express how i feel in this moment i don't want to be rejected i don't want to be accused of x or y you know whatever whatever our various fears are it's really hard it's really hard to do even with their closest loved ones families or friends or whatever let alone with you know, you know, um, a colleague, you know, we can, we, we're okay to, to do it. Some people are okay to do it, um, inappropriately 
for strangers at restaurants and stores, then we can totally unleash some people. Somehow that's okay to do, but, um, uh, but not, not doing it appropriately uh, to, to anyone really, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Like when I get upset at customer service people, I often, I often say, I want you to know, I'm not frust- I'm not angry with you. I'm frustrated or angry because of the situation because of X, Y, or Z of how I've been treated prior to getting on the phone with you, whatever it may be. So I'm trying to let them know, like, I'm, I want to express my frustration and anger, but I want you to know it's not targeted towards you, you know, Jane, who I've never met before, because I know ultimately that's not your fault. Mm. Uh, and I do that just try to from, from just from a, a humane place, because I know it's not this person's fault. They're reading a script or whatever they're, they're doing. Um, and I didn't think we all forget that in all the different interactions we have, whether it's with strangers or loved ones, we forget that, that there's a, a whole under emotional, um, emotional river happening below the surface that we're only partially tapped into. Absolutely. And, uh, and that plays, and that plays a part in how we show up in the world. Um, anyway, I, I, I think that, I think this, I think it's a, it's actually one of the major um, threats facing our society, actually. Uh, because Say more what about I'm, that. What I'm seeing right now is that our lack of emotional intelligence in our society has led to the rise of grifters and conspiracy mm. theories. Wow. Um, where people are responding to things emotionally and not necessarily rationally. Mm-hmm. They're not managing their emotions. Mm-hmm. It's just pure raw emotion without deciphering. Is this emotion um, appropriate for the context or situation? Is this emotion matched to any kind of reality? You know, again, versus, oh, I had this emotion and I overreacted. Like, mm-hmm. right again, I, you know, if I have a situation with a friend or family member, I can be upset at what happened and say, oh, Yes, I felt like you wronged me, and I overreacted to that. And if you mm-hmm. can admit that, that's a huge thing. But in our society, you're right. Everyone is just flying off the handle on Twitter or wherever on social media, and they're just automatically responding and reacting in a way that's not always mm-hmm. uh, measured to the actual situation or incident, and, and then leading to other you know, misinformation, disinformation, et cetera, et cetera. And it's um, it's the people I find that I find that the people who are out here complaining the most about people being too emotional are the ones who are in a situation to be most taken advantage of, mm. uh, because these are people who are not acknowledging their own emotional responses. Yeah, and like the thing that a lot of people might not realize is how much of society is built around the idea of taking advantage of another person's emotional responses like when i used to sell insurance what they would tell us is that we're making an emotional sale Mm -hmm. that our goal is to get the person emotionally invested get them to trust us help them to understand like we're appealing to them on an emotional level to Mm -hmm. try and sell the insurance Mm -hmm. um and this is a thing that a lot of alarmingly politicians do a lot of like like a lot of people don't realize it but donald trump was an emotional president donald trump was appealing to people's emotions he wasn't when a person comes to you and they're not coming with like 
like we as a society have lost track of what it means to have like a rational conversation because a rational conversation means that we have to be running off of something um, measurable and emotions aren't really measurable so we end up in this situation where people feel that things are true where people feel because this person made them feel something they automatically gain their trust but that's not a good way to develop trust like because literally the systems that are out there are designed to make you trust them on an emotional level when i sold insurance it was to get people to trust you on an emotional level when a person is saying things that you want to hear that make you feel good it's probably a problem if a person is feeding directly into your emotional response, you kind of have to, like, you need to be a little bit aware of that. Like, like right now we live in a society where people aren't aware of these things. Like, I, I've fortunately worked in the right places to be aware of this thing. I, I've worked in sales, and I've, I've learned theater, and I understand how, like, like, if people don't realize this, but, like, a lot of theater is just learning how to cue audiences into what emotion is being felt or what emotion you're supposed to be feeling. Mm -hmm. And like, this is also how sales work. This is how people get you into cults. This is how people get you to join their religion is this appeal to your intuition. And the thing about the appeal to your intuition is that you're every, obviously not, not everyone's intuition is pointing to the same thing. And you can manipulate people's intuition with an emotional response because we can't really tell the difference between what is something that makes us feel emotionally good and what is something that our intuition thinks is good. At least that's what, I, that's, that's what I'm seeing in the world today. Yeah, I, I guess I, I think that our emotions from 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 the from a little bit of what i've read about it our emotions are making your decisions whether we like it or not mm -hmm. nine times out of ten i'm i don't quote me on that but give or take and so how can we as individuals in a society be aware of that and use that more for good than for evil so as an example um the you know, there's been cases in situations where a policy is actually good for people, but they're not using good marketing tactics and marketing helps to use for, for good or for bad, helps us to play on our emotions to make decisions, right? If you're not using good marketing tactics to tell the story properly of that good policy, right? Then you, you have failed. You can grate all the great policies you want, but if you're not telling the story of that policy properly, in a way that's going to connect with people that they're going to hear it. They're going to digest it. They're going to be curious about it. They're going to want to explore it and then say yes to it. Then, then you've not done your job effectively as a political leader. And, and, and the reverse is true. People are using marketing and emotions, et cetera, to, you know, promote policies that are not good. Mm -hmm. um, and why people vote against their own self-interest is because certain I don't know how political we want to get, but certain parties are, you know, 
are, uh, depending on how you see it, are are getting people to vote against their self-interest because it, it serves them as as leaders um, and not the people and uh, and the populace. So that to me is sort of part of the challenge. It's not that I don't see that our the individually collectively that our, our emotions run our decisions as bad or wrong. That's just how we're built. It's how are we using them for good versus not good slash evil that is important. And and yes, um, people are using um, that for a variety of reasons for for cults and other bad bad things in the world, and they're using it for good. And, so that's and, a... and so I think that's sort of how I see it. Is that sort of depends on how we, you know, there's plenty of nonprofits out there that are great at marketing, true, and they raise good money for good causes, right? Now, having worked in the nonprofit field, I'll tell you the in you know sometimes it's the uh, the cobbler's children don't have shoes, right? They're doing this great mission work, and they're helping so many people, but internally, they're not. It's not slave labor, but they're they're not treating their employees with the best of of policies internally that they could do that for some sort of sacrifice towards the quote unquote greater good or they play upon the fact that we most people who 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 are working in in nonprofits do it from a place of their mission driven people so they keep sacrificing themselves for the mission instead of getting the hours off or getting paid properly or family leave or you name it and there i think not there's beginning to be a more of a reckoning in the nonprofit world similar to a little bit in the corporate world of like, hey, we need to treat people better. We need to be thoughtful about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. We need to have better family leave policies, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, also a trend that I'm seeing more and more that needs to be just normalized is that when you put a job description out there, put the salary range out there. Stop jerking people around, you know, and, making and them do this guessing, guessing game about what the, what the salary range is going to be. Stop wasting your time and my time because people will say, this is either what I want to get paid or I don't want to get paid and put that out there up front. And it's hard, it's happening more and more, but not in my mind, not as, as much as it could or should be. And I think, so that's my, that would be sort of how I get into this whole scene about how do we leverage our emotions mm -hmm. for sort of good or evil. It can be either way. It depends on how we, how we frame it and how we use it appropriately and effectively with a sense of responsibility versus, you know, people who, either doing it maliciously in some cases or just being ignorant and not paying attention and not being thoughtful in either case it sucks so uh, um by the way i'm running for president oh uh, of course no, i'm just kidding just you have my vote <laughs> um so a couple a couple things that actually i have three things came to mind there first sure, of all i imagined i i imagined a uh, a non-profit that was based around promoting diversity and you walk in and and oh okay good to know uh, I, I first thing I imagined was like a nonprofit where you walk in and their goal is to promote diversity. It's all white people. Uh, right, right. And um, the other th oh, shoot, what was the other thing you said? Um, oh, I've forgotten the middle thing. Uh, but the third thing, the third thing was is that a certain political party uh, in this country um, has <laughs> the thing that's alarming to me is that they. Even though they have been making a very strong emotional appeal to their base, 
they sell the concept of emotions as what is blinding their opposition and i and that's actually the thing that scares me the most is is that they're selling empathy as a distraction that oh those people they're just too bleeding heart or like bleeding heart almost seems like a slam on people who use empathetic reasoning yes Yes, God forbid we should be empathetic towards other people who are in a hard situation or different from us. And this certain political party, often often both individually and collectively, they're more than happy to take those services that they're bashing, mm-hmm. but but bash them as entitlements and blah, 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 and all this. Other. I mean, I had a friend of mine, this is years ago, when Obama was having sort of thing where you could, you could tr- I forget exactly what, I don't remember this, that you could turn in your car Mm-hmm. And, the, and the government would give you some sort of subsidy. I forgot why. You know like, what I'm talking I, about? I think I vaguely remember that. It was like a lemon thing. Like you, Yeah, like a lemon thing, right? You could turn in your car. It wasn't even a lemon thing. You could turn in your car and get some sort of subsidy because they were trying to, get, I think, maybe get older cars off the road for better, mm-hmm. um, for better, you know, uh, air quality or something like that. I don't remember. It. But yeah, I remember yeah. my Republican friend who did not vote for Obama, who is not, not a trumper or right wing but just a a good a good republican mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. she's technically against that policy but she go she went ahead and and you know got so you know gave got some sort of subsidy from the government and, da, 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 da. and so to me that's sort of the hypocrisy if you don't if you don't want government to you know do x y or z for society well then then you should just stand firm in your policies and then don't, don't take advantage of that you know mm-hmm. like i that's the part that i don't I don't understand uh, about some of my Republican friends. Not all of them, but some of them. And again, yeah. I want to I want to separate that out from people no. who are right wing crazy conspiracy people. Totally understand. And like I will even say to that, um, so it it is a known fact. Um, it has been very well documented that red states actually collect the most money from an yes exactly right which which raises a lot of questions about how well their right to work policies work uh right uh side note right to work states often poor uh but i didn't know uh, that either i didn't i mean knew the first part but i didn't know that part well i mean right right to work laws are garbage because they're also known as higher at at like at will employment is the more uh, accurate term for for right to work because mm-hmm. uh, it, it it literally is just laws and regulations that make it easier to fire and hire people right at like you don't like if you live in a right to work state it also means that they don't have to give a reason why they fired you mm-hmm. right. so that's oof that well now that we've well now that we've gotten political yeah let's let's do it i i do want to i do want to ask right Please. now alarmingly yes. There yes. is a lot of anti-Semitism going on in yeah. America, and actually, um, some some research has indicated that the prejudice against Jewish people has actually gone up in the last uh, in the last decade or so. That's um, true. So that's alarming, and uh, recently. Um, Big celebrity, uh, Mr. Ye West, yeah, formerly known as Kanye, has yeah. uh, come out very openly anti-Semitic. 
And uh, the right wing has gone into a feeding frenzy almost over it. Um, how do you have any? What are your What are your thoughts on this yeah. situation? Well, as the spokesperson for the Jews, uh, I say jokingly, um, yeah, like listen, I, um, I've, I, I've been lucky in my life. I've not had. I've only had a couple instances of anti-Semitism directed directly towards me. But um, but it can be um, it can be uh, emotionally you know traumatizing even in, in a minor way. Um, there's a, a sense of like security that you know I don't I don't feel secure walking around it you know in certain situations. Um, my kids go to a, a Jewish day school. And here in Akron, because it's a small Jewish community, it's different than other Jewish communities where, you know, if, if you're in like Chicago, Boston, or even Cleveland, if you go to a Jewish day school, all the kids are Jewish. And it's usually from one of the mo movements. It's either Orthodox, conservative, or reform. There's a few that are sort of pluralistic and have a multitude. But, you know, my kids, there's like 40, I think maybe 40% of the kids are Jewish. 60% of the kids are not Jewish. There are lots of different backgrounds at school. But, um, and we and we explore lots of different you know, beyond just Jewish perspectives, we, you know, explore a lot of other perspectives, but, um, but, you know, at certain points, you know, after the Pittsburgh shooting, I was scared as hell to send my kids there. I was scared to go to synagogue. Um, and every time one of those incidents happen, it's, it's really fearful. So why I say that, because they're not just words that Kanye or anybody else is saying, they really have impact because I forgot he's got, you know, 15 or 30 million followers or whatever it may be. It's like more than the number of fans. Jews in America, right? Like, so it's, it's, and then, you know, you get people who um, put more stuff on social media saying, yeah, Kanye was right. Oh, I was, I this is where, this is where, this is where it translates into direct personal impact. Uh, my family and I were with some friends at Summit Mall here in Akron. And uh, we were on the other side of the court, the food court. And so because a little bit distance away, I walked uh, one of my sons over to the bathroom and I stood at the entrance of the bathroom. And, uh, and he comes out and he goes, what did, what, 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 what did Kanye do? And he doesn't even know Kanye, you know, I don't, maybe he barely knows who the guy is, but um, I go, what, where did that come from? What, what do you mean, buddy? He's like, he kind of motioned me to follow him. He goes in, into the bathroom stall and wrote and marker says, Kanye did nothing wrong. Mm. Right. Oof. So now I have to explain that whole thing to my son, which I have no problem explaining to him. You know, like we've already explained anti-Semitism, unfortunately, mm -hmm. like we have to just like black people have to teach their kids about certain ways of how they have to deal with the police. That's horrendous. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Jewish parents have to teach their kids at a young age. And I, I'm not trying to compare it that black people. I'm not, this is not like a tragedy, <laughs> tragedy competition, yeah. but, but just to say that black people have it much worse in, in many ways. You're trying, um, you're trying to relate, not necessarily yes. to yes. the measure. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that clarification. But there was, you know, it, it's hard when you, when you at, at a very young age have to teach your kids what anti-Semitism is and what, why people are going to not like them slash hate them slash be out for them in some way. Um, and in any case, so I would say a couple things about Kanye. One, that, you know, you can't, at this point, you can't just 
slough it up as crazy. Um, I, True. I, Being crazy uh, doesn't automatically make you anti-Semitic. No. It doesn't excuse. make you automatic, exactly. And it's, it's not an excuse. And and thank goodness there's been more and more people in the black community, not just about anti-Semitism, but all the things he said about slavery as a choice and white lives matter, like, you know, they're, they're, you know, there, there's more and more of that just saying like, hey, across the board, this guy is way out of line and he's aligning himself with with white supremacists and he doesn't realize that he is he is a tool for white supremacists um, and a tool for people who are prejudiced, even if they're not white supremacists. And it's it's disheartening and, you know, filled with misinformation. And then you have people like Kyrie Irving and um, mm-hmm. and, you know, putting out, you know, Fording, I have not watched the, the, the film, but just reading about the film in, from different outlets, it's filled with not just misinformation, but disinformation about about um, about how the Jews were a part of the slave trade and things of that nature. Um, I imagine that like, it's heavily de- I imagine that their involvement is heavily decontextualized. Correct. That's, right. that's typically how you build something. Is like you say, oh, but like for that time period, yeah, they're probably could have been a few jewish people involved it's just the major it was the major industry at the time so you're decontextualize like you're you're decontextualizing the history and you're you're trying to draw lines that really shouldn't be there like and and i would say further it's not to excuse slavery it's to say that you can't equate you can't say that the jews you know own the media or the jews uh you know uh have some sort of global media conspiracy or 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 they single-handedly ran the slave trade like those are those are facts that are just you know mm-hmm. not true and by the way yeah, no. if you, you know if you know any jews there's no way we keep secrets by the way that's just not happening um so <laughs> you know like so uh you know th- that's where the the problem is, is that you use these these um these tropes, anti-Semitic tropes, and even Dave Chappelle, who I respect, I love Dave Chappelle's work. I think oh, most times he is funny, but whether it's he's been, about- He's, he's sort of turning into just an old guy now. He's being a you know, curmudgeon as well, but like whether it's about, you know, I get that there can be nuanced conversations about things and et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, I don't know if you, if you saw John Stewart's interview with Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I did John Stewart, that, yeah. Right, he was trying to defend Dave Chappelle and saying, having a nuanced conversation, but, I don't know. I think that was a little bit of an excuse. I don't see Dave Chappelle having a nuanced conversation. I think he was using certain anti-Semitic tropes in a way that, A, I don't think was that funny. And I'm pretty open. I'm okay with la- laughing at something that's offensive, mm-hmm. right? And go, ooh, that was funny. That hurt, you know, kind of thing. I have no problem with that. But to me, it wasn't It wasn't funny. It was just on the offensive side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I that- think- I think yeah, it's just ahead. that I think it's just that Dave Chappelle looks subtly nuanced compared to what Ye was saying. Sure, hundred percent. Yeah, like true. compared but, to on comparison, right? right. But it, it's interesting that that Stephen Colbert, who's the Catholic guy, had to tell John Stewart, the Jewish guy, "How about we just say that anti-Semitic tropes are wrong?" Period. Like, you know, like you know, like you, you, if he wants to make a point, that you can make points in other ways without using those tropes. And again, it's not that you know, there's there are lobby groups that's a, that that is a whole other conversation for another time. But there are lobby groups that lobby on behalf of jewish causes but there's lobby groups for black people there's lobby groups for asian people that's not that you know so to say that having to make that to make that jump of just because there's lobby groups for jewish causes 
suddenly that means that the Jews control the government. Like that, that, that's where, that's where we get things that are out of hand. I know I'm sort of jumping to another topic, but that's where I think you say like, Oh yeah, there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood. So for, therefore the Jews run Hollywood. Like you, you're, you're, you're conflating two different things and that's, what's not fair. Yeah. And that's what then makes it anti-Semitic as I sort of my mm-hmm. take on it. And even there, like the idea that all Jewish people agree is, is not a true statement oh either. Like, um, first of all, there's many different denominations of Jewish people. Um, is Jerry yeah. Bruckheimer Jewish? I don't, I don't know. know off the top, man. I don't know. Um, but like, there are definitely like not not everyone in Hollywood is putting out the same tropes. Not everyone right. in Hollywood's putting out the same messages. The internet right. would like you to believe that all of Hollywood is woke, but I've seen the Transformers movies. They're not. <laughs> they're pretty. Pretty blatantly right wing. I don't, I don't know right. what anyone. And by uh, the way, a lot of like the composers from the '30s and '40s who were Jewish were making Christmas songs. Oh yeah, and making Christian movies, you know, Christmas movies and things of that nature. So absolutely, it, and it's, it wasn't like they were doing like you know, home for Hanukkah movies, you know, uh, in 1940. Um, so, you know, and also having been out, lived out in LA for a while, speaking of sort of the different, there's a lot of Jewish people who just want to be secular cultural they're not even quote-unquote religious or whatever there's a lot of different ways to kind of tap into mm-hmm. being jewish it's a people that it's a civilization it's a religion it's a culture it's a you know mm-hmm. and so and that again can be true for other faiths slash cultures and backgrounds as well but that's definitely true for for even within my own family that's what i'll say this i know just to kind of like give an example and I'm sure other anybody else can relate this from from other cultural backgrounds. My sister and brother and I raised in the same household, but how we all three of us approach Jew, being Jewish are completely different from one another. Um, there's overlap, but there's also a lot of differences. So, like just as one sort of microcosmic example, mm-hmm. you know, and then again, I would assume that my friends who are Catholic could say the same thing, or people from I don't know, you know, X Y Z country. Can say the same thing even my friends who are immigrants from other countries uh how the how one sibling looks and views being an american versus the other person looks and views being american but they have immigrant parents would be widely different again just as another example so just to put anybody in one particular group is is ignorant and frustrating oh totally true uh I, I always joke that uh, the thing about Catholics is it's kind of a toss-up. If you flip a coin, uh, they're either progressive or they're insane. Uh, it's not... <laughs> wow. Catholics can Yikes. go either way. Okay. Catholics can go either way, you know? All right. Like, I, 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 I like... I, lo- I know a lot of progressive Catholics, but at the same time, I'll be, like, driving around my neighborhood, and I'll see these cars that have a sign that say... Our, that have, like, the Virgin Mary on it and say, Our Lady of America. And it's like... What do you think that means? Right, right, <laughs> like, right. Like, right. what, what are you saying? That looks like some Christian nationalism on your car to me. Right. That's again. There's a difference. You want to have, you know, the statue in your front yard. God bless you. Have fun with that. Enjoy it. Whatever. But if you start to equate that, there's only one way to be American, which is your way. Mm-hmm. Then that, that's where it huge gets into crazy land. Yeah. Yeah. Huge right. problem. So anyways, uh, that's my take on Kanye and all that, the anti-Semitism things. And, and I think that people forget that, you know, that words matter and that it impacts people's lives. And then you have people 
you know, famously standing on the 405 in LA, you know, uh, with anti-Semitic um, banners that that impact people. And then you then the next thing is that people are then uh, going into a kosher restaurant or a synagogue and either threatening people or actually killing people. And 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 the and the how they got there was through words that they then got brainwashed by that mm-hmm. then made them take action in the way. Um, and they're not all crazy people who are doing it. Um, and, they're just, and, and, yeah, they're, they're just people what? who are having a negative emotional reaction. Circling they're, back. They're yes. being overwhelmed by their emotions and they're afraid because life is confusing. And yes. uh, half, the t- half the time, like, half the time people will point to things in society and be like, it's the Jews. And I'll be like, no, that's just capitalism, sir. <laughs> that's just that's just how capitalism works. It's not great, right. but that's that's that has nothing to do with them being Jewish. That right. there are Protestant white people doing that same shit, man. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It, it's just capitalism. And yeah, sort of going back to this whole emotional, you know, our emotional responses as humans. How do we manage it individually? How do we manage it collectively? Are we using it for good or for evil? Whether you know it's political leaders or you know, the guys on Wall Street, uh, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, IBM or whomever. Jews control all the banks, including the ones in Saudi Arabia and Iran and <laughs> and Belarus and Hungary. Right, right. All the right. countries that are brutally right. anti-Semitic. Obviously, the media and banks are run by Jews there, too. <laughs> right. Break it down. Destroy the myths. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's tons of Jews in Iceland. I actually have no idea. I have no idea what the Jewish population is in Iceland. Then maybe either. they have I'm Jewish sure people. Can, maybe they don't. I'm sure, you Google it. My they, guess is almost, almost, except for a few uh, Arab countries. It's a whole nother conversation. But yes, almost. I'm sure somewhere there's there's a Jew. We yeah. we like to be everywhere. Yeah, I, I will say that about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, which is also not a conspiracy. <laughs> Yes, right. I'm not not in any way saying that that's a conspiracy. I just want to be clear to the listeners that is not a conspiracy. Yep. Yeah. The exactly. Immig- immigration itself is not automatically right. A a, a, a a conspiracy, even though, regardless of its uh, if it's Jewish or Muslim or or Mexican immigration, some people would like to paint it that way. Yeah. Uh, okay. You so you have to go here in a minute, but. Uh, I do. Real quick, uh, that actually might be too big of a can of worms. So I was going to ask you real quick Just about, about Tucker Carlson. Speed run. Tucker, Tucker Carlson says a lot of things that are appear to be dog whistles for anti-Semitic uh, conspiracies. Things like he's a big supporter of the uh, Great Replacement Theory, although mm-hmm. he doesn't word it as the Jews. He words it as the Democrats uh-huh. uh, are bringing right. in um, – foreigners to replace white voters and he's yeah. all about demographic change which has a long history of being connected to uh, anti-semitic conspiracy theories he's you know i think i think i think the i think the problem with guys like him is that you know he's just um he's using it for he's using marketing for evil and he is um you know just trying to you know he's just a whore trying to make a buck uh, and I say horror in the disrespectful way, not in a respectful way. Uh, I think that, uh, I think the prop, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch the whole series of Orange is the New Black, but I did watch 
at one point the lead character um is trying to i forgot what she has some sort of in the prison she's got some if you've seen it she's a prisoner or whatever yeah. and she's a white collar person or whatever goes to prison for drugs yeah. or something right so she she's now trying to uh have some sort of business and she's uh in the prison and she realizes that if she aligns herself with the the white nationalists, the female white nationalists, they can be her protection and they can help her get her business going, you know, further along. And she's purely just using them uh, as a tool. But then what happens as the season progresses is that they, in essence, start to take over. And anytime she questions that they're going too far, they start to look to look at her and say, what are you? Are, what, what are you? You know, they basically, they, 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 for, they force her to kind of stick with them. Right, because they intimidate her, and to me, that's that's sort of the problem with with uh, Tucker Carlson or any of these people that are leveraging these white supremacists. Is is Tucker Carlson a card carrying member of the KKK? Probably not, but he's trying to leverage these types of people for his own gain, and that is a game that is playing with fire that will eventually come back not only to hurt society, but probably if karma is correct, will hurt him as well. And that's that's the problem is that Tucker Carlson and the like and and some of the Republicans are leveraging and and Trump, for that matter, are leveraging these white nationalists and throwing out these dog whistles because they know it, it keeps them in power and keeps them getting what they want. And they're they they don't realize the fire that they're playing with. And I, at that, to me, is what can be very, very scary. I think that's a, a very well put and could be applied to a number of them, including people like maybe Ben Shapiro. Um, yeah, sure. Right. Totally. Yeah. hundred yeah. uh, percent. That guy's a complete jerk. Uh, and and what, what's challenging is that what's the guy from Turning Point? What's that guy's name? Kirk something? Charlie, uh, Charlie Kirk. What's the challenging is that this guy Shapiro and Charlie Kirk, they seem like they're actually smart people. When I, the, the bits that I listen to, they seem like they're actually smart, but they, they're, that they know how to really twist things, right? Versus Tucker Carlson, I don't think that he's really smart. I think he just he's just smart enough mm-hmm. to twist things, but I don't think he, I don't get a sense that he's really smart, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that it's it's the smarter they are, that sort of feels even more and more dangerous to me um, because they uh, because they really know what they're doing. I don't, you know, not that Tucker Carlson doesn't know what he's doing, but like there's like a a higher level of uh, machinations that's happening, the more intelligent you are and how much you're really manipulating people. Um, I can see that. I could go on for hours about that. Absolutely. I knew that uh, one was a can of worms and I wouldn't be able to. No, no, it's all right. And and, and just one, I'll just button this with it. I was just in Florida uh, and, you know, took a little break from work, was walking on the beach and some guy, you know, here in Florida, some older dude sitting on the beach, reading the Tucker Carlson book. And I was just like, Oh, I, I so want to engage in this guy with conversation, but I'm like, that'll ruin my, it'll ruin my time here. And I, you know, <laughs> I need to be at peace and I can't, and I'm not going to change his mind. So I'm moving on. Um, but it, yeah, that's, that's the problem is that he goes out and sells books and then people gobble them up and they don't, and probably many of them don't realize that they're digesting all these dog whistles and then yeah. they're repeating it to their friends mm-hmm. and family members. And it just keeps perpetuating. Right. Absolutely. So they're saying Democrats, but not only do they mean the Democrats, they mean Jews, blacks, Asians, liberals, 
liberals. Um, Anyone they, they think you should be like afraid that. of. Yeah, exactly. If right. someone starts talking to you about demographic change, right, they're a racist. Right. Like right. that. It's the only reason to be worried about demographic change. Yeah, and listen, I think there's another thing is that like, I think that there's a. Uh, this is a whole nother can of worms we don't have time for but i just say like you know we as white people have obviously people on the right wing of things aren't going to get this but i think anybody who's moderate to to being liberal we have to do work we got to figure figure out how we are part of the problem and how can we be more part of the solution and just saying speaking personally i you know, I, earlier I said I'm hyper liberal. I'm actually not hyper liberal. I'm probably more more moderate in, in mm -hmm. many ways, but well, liberal in others. But I would say that like I thought I was part of the solution, and then when when the George Floyd tragedy happened and the protests were happening, I had I had a, a an awakening in a, in a in a good way of like oh I'm only a small small part. I I I I need to do a hell of a lot more to educate myself. A hell of a lot more to um to 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 learn to to cooperate to be part of the solution to understand how i can be more sensitive and i thought i was one of the quote unquote good guys and i'm like yeah i've got a lot to learn and i think there's much more of that that needs to happen again not just from white people but primarily from white people i mean i think from all people from different backgrounds need to be open to their own emotions how they see people we all mm -hmm. as the song goes we're all a little bit racist um, and so I think we all need to kind of check ourselves about how we are having those prejudices, prejudices in the world um, and, be, and try to counteract them. Absolutely. I, I would say I agree with that. I myself am still learning as, as a white person. Um, I like a, a major thing that I've now had to start considering uh, now that I have a podcast is is like, how am I centering myself in the thing? Because I simultaneously believe that as a white person, I need to say things against uh, racism, and I need to say yes. things. Uh, and as a non-Jewish person, I need to say things against anti-Semitism. But at the same time, I need to balance that in a way where I'm not making my voice center, because ultimately, I am not the. While I could be argued to be affected holistically in society, I am not the person who is affected directly, and I'm not the person who has the major life experiences. I'm just a person doing research and trying to put stuff out there. It, it should never be my goal to replace those voices, and I have to try and figure out how I can keep true to myself in expressing my thoughts and opinions on it, well, at the same time, not trying to take away from the black or Jewish voices on these conversations. 100%. Yeah, it just it's about how to balancing being an ally in a way that's positive and constructive. Exactly. Uh, yeah, 100%. Totally get that. Absolutely. All right, well, well, thank you so much for, for coming on here, Brian. This was a, a fantastic talk. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking me. I really had a good time. I'm glad we were able to talk about so many different things. And... Uh, I'll come yeah. back again when you when you let me. Oh no, absolutely! I would love to talk to you more about uh, teaching improv or well anything really. Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for for being here, Brian. Uh, Brian, do you have anything you want to promote before you go? Oh, uh, uh, first of all, peace, love, and harmony. Uh, I sort of say that both in tongue in cheek, but also being true. Um, but yeah, nimblelearningstrategies.com is my website. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. 
Ryan Rolnick Fox, as we discussed earlier. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's all for now. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Let's say goodbye to the people. Goodbye, people. Goodbye, people. Oh, it's active. It's acting new. Floor manager, Jeffy. We shall begin the first day of work the way we begin every day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Patrick Stewart as Picard, Jonathan Flakes as Wyker, Brent Spiner as Data, LeVar Burton as Geordi, Michael Dorn as Wolf, Gates McFadden as Beverly, Marina Sirtis Troy, Malcolm McDowell as Soren, James Duhan as Scotty, Walter Keo Walter Koenig as Chekhov, William Shatner Kirk, Alan Ruck Captain Harriman, Jacqueline Kim Demora. Jeanette Goldstein, science officer. Thomas Kopashi, comm officer. Glenn Morshower, sounds like Morshower. Navigator, Tim Russ, lieutenant. Tommy Hinckley, journalist. John Putch, journalist. Christian Jansen, journalist. Michael Mack, Ensign Hayes. D Dendry Taylor, lieutenant Farrell. Patty Yasut Yasutaki Nurse Ogawa Granville M. Ames Transporter Chief Henry Marshall Security Officer Brittany Parkin Girl with Teddy Bear Majel Barrett Computer Voice Barbara March Lursa Gwyneth Walsh Bieter Riff Hutton Klingon Guard Brian Thompson Klingon Helm Marcy Goldman, El Arian Survivor, Jim Cristalude, El Arian Survivor, Judy Levitt, El Arian Survivor, Christopher Logan, El Arian Survivor, Gwyn Van Damme, El Arian Survivor, Kim Braden, Picard's wife, Christopher James Miller, Picard's nephew, Matthew Collins, Picard's kid, Mimi Collins, Picard's kid. Thomas Decker, Picard's kid as Alexander Decker. Madison Eggington, Picard's kid. Olivia Hack, Picard's kid. Yeah, he had a lot of babies. <clears throat> Rest of cast in alphabetical order. Sam Allergen, El Arian Survival, uncredited. David Keith Anderson, Ensign Armstrong, uncredited. Lena Banks, Operations Division Ensign, uncredited. Scotty Barry, Klingon, uncredited. Rena Bennett, Enterprise B officer, uncredited. Pam Blackwell, L. Arian survivor, uncredited. Cameron, Ensign Kellogg, uncredited. Tracy Coke, Coco, Ensign J, uncredited. Debbie David, Ensign Russell, uncredited. Andrew De Palma, L. Arian, uncredited. Steve Diamond, Command Division Officer Uncredited. Michael Eccles. Not that one. Michael Klingon Warrior Uncredited. Tarek Ergen, Medical Technician Uncredited. Gunnel Erickson, Science Division Officer Uncredited. Margaret Ross Flores, Enterprise D Civilian Uncredited. Whoopi Goldberg, Grenon Uncredited. I know I couldn't know who she was, right, guys? Starhelm Enterprise D. That's that's his name, by the way. Starhelm Enterprise D officer 
Adolphus uncredited. Adolphus Hankins, Maiden Voyage, official, uncredited. Grace Harrell, alien civilian in 10 forward, uncredited. Carrie Hoyt, Operation Division Ensign, uncredited. Gary Hunter, Vulcan civilian, uncredited. Randy James, Lieutenant Jones, uncredited. Dale Kasman, Enterprise B officer, uncredited. Stuart Liu, crewman in 10 forward, uncredited. Lorraine Mendel, Enterprise B crewman, uncredited. Carlotta Nelson, LRN survivor, uncredited. Jimmy Portnoy, Enterprise D civilian, uncredited. Jerry L. Quinn, Enterprise B crewman, uncredited. Keith Rave, Command Division Officer, uncredited. Raul Reformina, Command Division Officer, uncredited. Lynn Salvatore Antonia, uncredited. Richard Sarsted, Command Division Officer, uncredited. Penny Smart Jude, Women in 10 Forward, uncredited. Patricia Tallman, Enterprise D Officer, uncredited. John Alex Tampoya, Enterprise B Crewman, uncredited. Dennis Tracy, Bolian 10 Forward Walter, uncredited. Guy Vardaman, Darian Wallace, uncredited. D. Danny Warhol, Engineering Crewman, Running in Hallway, uncredited. Alright everyone, now that I've listened to everyone for the movie Star Trek Generations, you may begin your day of work!